Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger. This week, we are talking to Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes, and David French. I think we're going to make it easy this week. Domestic politics, foreign politics. And there's plenty to talk about on those two fronts. Let's start on the domestic side. Obviously, the Georgia runoff Senate election happened this week. Democrat Raphael Warnock, an incumbent, won that race uh, by about three points. Not actually that close. But on the other hand, that's pretty close. Steve, what are we supposed to make of that? Uh, It was... Yet another example in the 2022 election cycle of candidates mattering. In this case, I think candidates mattering a lot. Um, Herschel Walker wasn't much of a candidate. He didn't spend a lot of time talking to voters. He was propped up by mostly Senate Republicans from Washington who did everything from hold his hand during appearances to raise tens of millions of dollars to try to get him across the finish line. Uh, and it didn't work. He was a bad candidate. Most of them in private would tell you that they were embarrassed uh, at the possibility of him being a colleague. Uh, he didn't take advantage of the, I would say, the the broad dissatisfaction in the country and in Georgia in particular with the Biden presidency and the direction of the country. And uh, he was a, an overall all failure. The interesting sort of final note for me is a really interesting uh, piece this morning from Nate Cohn in the New York Times about the alleged problems that Republicans had in turning out their voters. That was not a problem. It wasn't a problem nationally. It wasn't a problem in Georgia. Republican voters turned out. Uh, in some cases, they really turned out. There was a Republican voter surge. It's just that in many of these places, in many of these cases, they didn't want to vote for crummy candidates. And Georgia is uh, evidence of that. I mean, David... <sighs> There's two versions of this, each of which has some kernel of truth to it, which is Georgia's also trending blue. Um, And so, you know, things don't happen all at once. Georgia elected a Democratic senator, re-elected that Democratic senator this year. Um, Maybe this is just a sign of changes within the state. Well, to an extent, I, you know, this is, this would not happen in Tennessee, for example, Georgia has trended overall blue to an extent to where at least you have a chance as a statewide Democrat, but to put this in perspective, um, this was the only- I mean, you say that Alabama, don't forget, elected a Democrat. (laughs) Right. Extreme circumstances. (laughs) Candidates mattered in that case. Extreme (laughs) circumstances. But what's uh, fascinating to me, just to harp on Alabama for a second, that wasn't a close race. Alabama candidates mattered a lot if you're going right. to elect a Democratic senator in Alabama to begin with. And then it wasn't close. Here, uh, you can argue candidates matter, but then, boy, three points, that's not a blowout. Right. But I was going to put this in some context. Yeah, Georgia's getting bluer, but let's not go crazy here. These are the, so Herschel Walker was the only statewide statewide Republican to lose. And here are the other margins. Uh, Governor, where um, Kemp was arguably going against a more formidable opponent even than Raphael Warnock, perhaps, R plus eight. Lieutenant Governor, which was one of the shakier candidates, R plus five. Secretary of State, R plus nine. Everything was between R plus five and R plus nine on the statewide. Every single race was in that range, except for Herschel Walker, D plus three. So there is, it, it is absolutely the case that Georgia is bluer than it used to be. It is also absolutely case that Herschel Walker paid about an eight, between an eight and a 12 point tax on support by, as, vir, as a virtue of his terrible candidacy. So yeah, a little bit bluer, but that doesn't fully explain what happened here. And don't forget Biden won the state, of course, in yeah. 2020 as well. I mean, by hair margin. Right. Um, uh, Jonah, hearing maybe a little overreading from the other side that Raphael Warnock uh, is a contender for president. 
Jonah has made a face. I've made a face. I mean, I, what what asylums and crack dens are you hanging out with, hanging out in that you're hearing this chatter? Um, yeah, I don't, I, I, look, uh, it's funny. I was on CNN the other day and uh, I said, I thought he was a weak candidate, but but that Herschel Walker was weaker or something of that effect. And um, I think it was Karen Flynn, a Democratic, former Democratic official said, I don't think he's a weak candidate. It's just a bad environment. We're talking about Warnock. And um, I think it's an interesting distinction because uh, he's, my point was, I don't think we really disagreed. My point is he was a bad candidate for Georgia. And if you have a milquetoast, boring Republican running against Warnock, that Republican would have won because the state, I don't think, is nearly as blue as people want it to be or that it may be in 10 years. You do have a lot of northern transplants and whatnot, but um, um, I do not in the slightest think that Warnock is like a, a, is like a front runner. If like Biden were to say he's not running, I don't know why anyone would think he would he would rise to the top. Um, it's also I mean I was I was kind of surprised you didn't bring it up because it's the kind of thing you dig bringing up the amount of money that was spent in Georgia by everybody. You know, but like, I think in the last three cycles, it's something like a billion or $3 billion. I mean, some crazy amount of total spending if you had the presidential and the midterms and the runoffs and whatnot. And in this race alone, I think $300 million, you know, or like Warnock has raised $300 million on his own in the last few years. It is just an insane amount of money. And I think the relevance here is, because I'm just going to, I, I don't, I'm still trying to parse the idea that Warnock is a presidential contender now. But the, um, I think the, the, one of the more interesting stories coming out of this is that everybody, I mean, yeah, a lot of Republican Senate Fox News guests came and campaigned for Herschel Walker, but he was basically left high and dry by everybody except Mitch McConnell's pack. And um, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think this, argument that Georgia proves McConnell should go is one of, you know, it's like part five of one of the dumbest bits of analysis um, of, of this entire cycle. So uh, I got nothing else for you on this. <laughs> well, something I think that is looming over all of these conversations, wherever you hear them, this wasn't actually about the 51st seat in the Senate. You know, this was the future of the Republican Party. This was the future of the Democratic Party, maybe. Um, this was all supposed to have these looming larger implications. Okay, so we've got the results now. Another Trump candidate goes down. Um, David, you wrote, I, I really liked your newsletter this week about this, that it's cumulative, right? Each loss yeah. informs all the losses before it. And I, I want you to talk about that a little. But at the same time, if Republicans want to win elections, it's not as easy as simply saying, great, Chuck Trump, Chuck these candidates, go back to the DeWines and Sununus and Ducey's uh, and Kemp's and brush your hands off and they're suddenly going to sweep all these elections because the Republican Party, I mean, think about, we've talked about this in the 2024 context, that if DeSantis beats Trump in the primary, which is an if, but not some like yeah. impossible task at this point. I wrote about the the polling and like there's good signs in there for DeSantis. Not perfect, but good. Um, okay, so he's the general election Republican nominee. That has not solved a lot of his problems because now what does Trump do? What do his voters do? How many of them are there? And if they stay home, can any Republican nominee actually win in a general election? The point being, the Republican Party now has a big problem. They've got two wings of their party and neither can win without the other. And so I, and I got this question from someone um, who, a listener, and I thought it was a smart question. We're hearing a lot of blame and ridicule on MAGA primary voters for picking these folks who can't win in general elections. But if all you're doing is ridiculing them and condemning them for losing the Senate, is that really going to bring them back into the fold uh, of the Republican electorate, to which I said, that's not my job. But <laughs> my job is not to help Republicans win elections. Um, but it's an interesting point about how the Republican Party is going to sew this back together, David. Yeah, 
Well, here's an interesting question for me, because if you look at this, if the thesis was one set of Republicans will take their ball and go home if the Trump faction is sort of defeated, um, but then if you coddle the Trump faction, then another set of Republicans will take their ball and go home. How does that explain, say, the success of Brian Kemp? Because Brian Kemp was directly challenged in the primary, loathed by Donald Trump, won his primary, and, and near, as near as we can tell, the MAGA right didn't leave him. That they may have voted against him in the primary, but there's no sign at all that they left him when the general election rolled around and he had one of, of the statewide Republicans, he had one of the most convincing victories. Brad Raffensperger had a very convincing victory after beating a serious Trumpist challenger. See, what I find interesting about that, by the way, is less Brian Kemp and more Brad Raffensperger, because I can in theory explain the Brian Kemp win that they come home because it's Stacey Abrams on the right. other side. Right. Harder to say that with the Raffensperger race. Yeah. So, you know, there's this, there's a lot of polling that asks, are you a MAGA? Are you more MAGA than you are Republican? And I'm skeptical about that. At the one hand, I do completely agree. And I'm not backtracking at all on this discussion we had last week where I said, yikes, if DeSantis wins, he should never expect that moment with Trump on the stage with him holding his hand in the air and that sign of unity. Just never expect it. We should expect Trump instead to try to rally people to call it an illegitimate result. Um, and that will, that'll peel off some people. I'm just getting more skeptical every week, every month, how many that will be about how many that will be. Uh, and I'm one thing that makes me, I'm just a little bit more skeptical of these polls that say where somebody says, I'm a MAGA Republican, or I'm more Trump than I am Republican. Not so much because I think that they're super loyal Republicans, is that I think a lot of these guys are in the bottom line really, really anti-left. Yeah, so that's I think that's the key. It's yeah, it, and that's that's what it would explain Raffensperger is that we know this, this is finally negative polarization has a positive effect, right? Right. If, if you actually believe that the Democrats are a sinister, satanic cabal of child blood drinking deep staters then you got to vote for Raffensperger, right? right? <laughs> and that's the whole logic of MAGA is to say, Democrats are so illegitimate and so evil, you got to vote for our crazy guys no matter what. And I think a lot of those MAGA people believe it, so they're going to vote for normies, even if they have to. Steve, what about the results in Georgia? To David's thesis that each loss kind of informs the ones before it, uh, how has this informed your view of the future of political conservatism. Yeah, are you not going to endorse Trump in 2024 now, <laughs> <Stephen>? <laughs> um, I I don't I don't dis dispute your your broad thesis that you know, for Republicans to be successful in 2024 at the pre presidential level, they'll need to in some way or another bring together both of these sides, right? But I do think David is right that in in these particular cases. But David's point is well taken and those people may show up regardless. Yeah, and he may have even understated it. Remember, uh, Brian Kemp faced uh, Purdue in the primary, recruited mm -hmm. by Trump, championed by Trump, pushed by MAGA, and Purdue lost in the primary to Brian Kemp by 52 points. He was destroyed. So it was close. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would still argue closer than it maybe should have been, but... But What's so funny destroyed. is you say that, just to clarify, like one could hear that to mean he got 52 points, like Brian, you know, but like, no, no, no. The no, no. delta between the, the two gap. candidates yeah. was 52 points. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, for people who have been skeptical for Trump for a long time, on the one hand, this isn't a new problem. You know, it's, it's not like people are just waking up and saying, oh boy, there's going to be this divide between, you know, people skeptical of Trump and the and the the super MAGA crowd that's been in evidence since 2015, and frankly, a, a lot of people had predicted this moment. Said, "Yeah, when mm -hmm. there's a split, you're you're driving people out of the Republican Party who had been longtime loyal Republicans, straight ticket Republicans, because they looked at what was happening 
with Trump and under Trump and with the this sort of Trump adjacent or Trump supported Republicans and said, I don't want anything to do with that. That's that's a clown show. This is toxic. It's not going to work for the rest of the electorate. And by the way, I don't like these people. So they left. And that was, by the way, deliberate on the part of many MAGA Republicans. They said proudly, we want to drive out these Republicans who don't fit. So, you know, this is not a new problem. And while I think you're right descriptively, uh, I, I don't I don't. It seems to me that, that there's not an easy solution, but what we have seen in 2022 suggests that the solution is not go more MAGA, go harder to the base. And the, and the commentary that Jonah was was mentioning, I don't know if he was talking about this specifically or or more broadly, but there was, I saw a clip of, of Laura Ingram and Molly Hemingway and yeah. Kellyanne Conway talking about uh, Georgia, as the results came in, Laura Ingram had the the responsibility of telling Fox viewers Herschel Walker was losing. And then there was this two minute sort of joint tirade about the failure of the establishment. And this is means Mitch McConnell has to go. And, you know, Molly Hemingway said, this is the Republican Party ignoring its base. I mean, it's hard to <laughs> you, you stop for a second That's and you wonder, so does she know that she's totally wrong, that what she's arguing is completely detached from reality? Or does she understand it? But she's so devoted to fan service that this is what she's decided to do. But it should be pointed out. Mitch McConnell raised and spent tens of millions of dollars, I think near $50 million, supporting Herschel Walker, who Donald Trump recruited to run in Georgia. Donald Trump, far as we can tell, spent about $4 million. And even in the post-election pre-runoff part of this, where fundraising was thought to have been really important, particularly important, Trump sent out fundraising appeals saying that he would keep 90% of the money donated to the, to the appeal and Herschel Walker would get 10%. The problem here was not that Mitch McConnell and Republicans didn't pull their weight. It's that Donald Trump is a grifter who sought to capitalize on this for his own for his own purpose. After there was a story written about that, they changed it to 50-50. And Trump wasn't the only one. North Carolina Republican right. Party, J.D. Vance, all were sending out quote unquote, fundraising appeals on behalf of Walker, so much so that the Walker campaign manager put out his own memo telling people to stop basically stealing money from them. Um, Jonah, uh, there will be a lot of attention paid to the 2024 Republican presidential primary in terms of what it says about the future of Republicanism and Trumpism and all of that. But there are going to be a ton of Senate races in red states um, in 2024. And I mean red presidential states with Democratic senators, um, Montana, West Virginia, Ohio. Indiana will have an open seat now. Texas and Florida will have Republican incumbents um, running again. But in some ways, that will be more interesting to me about this primary issue than the presidential race. The presidential race will have far bigger sort of implications writ large. I get that. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, you can say that every campaign operative in the country knows that early voting is a good thing and that telling your voters only to vote on election day is the dumbest just strategy that you could possibly want. It, it, it would be the perfect self-sabotage. Um, and yet there is the Republican party with a double digit gap. I mean, a huge, you know, sort of depends on exactly what you're looking at, but I'm looking at, you know, a, a 15, 20 point gap in early voting at this point in something Republicans used to lead in, used to have the edge in and nowhere near that edge, by the way. Um, so everyone knows that the only person who seems to have been able to do anything about it is Ron DeSantis in Florida, where Republicans actually did maintain a lead in early voting and a healthy one. Uh, and my point being that you can have all these people in DC talking to Steve Hayes quietly about how they understand what all of these election losses mean, but it don't mean a thing if you don't got that swing in the primary elections. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're not willing to say these candidates cannot win general elections and say it with one voice instead of sort of the 
Kevin McCarthy, let's sing Kumbaya together and we'll figure it out when we get to the general election. So did Republicans learn anything in the last four years? Uh, Four years, I think that's too broad a timeline. In the last four months? <laughs> yeah, I think they're, I, there are signs that it's baby steps, right? You know, you, you set reasonable goals um, in sort of in a therapeutic sense so that they can have a sense of victory. And when you hear, you know, it's like when you hear people tweet things without mentioning Donald Trump, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, I'm glad to know that Ted Cruz thinks that the Constitution is enduring and will last for millennia. Um, and um, and I, I suspect, like, if Ron DeSantis uh, were the nominee in 2024, he could actually just say, hey, you know what? We fixed this early voting thing for Republicans. Yeah. Um, you can now vote early Republican. Right. Because that's how it, he's able to say it in Florida. Right. And, and again, Florida runs its elections very, very well. Um, so there's some substance to that. But like, I think if you got Fox News and everybody else to say, you know, we realize what a problem early voting was, but now we fixed it and you should do it, too. Um, you could fix some of that kind of problem. Um but I agree. Look, the Senate primary map is a fascinating question because as, as incredibly incandescently stupid as I think the campaign against Mitch McConnell is, and I'm not, it's, it's not that I'm a huge Mitch McConnell fan. It's that I think the things we know about Mitch McConnell are that he likes being a senator, which I admire. He's an institutionalist. He wants Republicans to be in the majority. And he thinks that the way you get to the majority is running generally normal human beings, you know, bipedal carbon-based life forms um, in the general election. And that's who he wanted to, to erase in, in 2022. And he wasn't allowed to have nice things. And so anyway, I, I, I kind of feel like at some point, that argument has to be making inroads in various places. Um, but the problem is, is that there are people who understand that that's the smart argument and don't care. Mm-hmm. And the sort of entertainment wing, they would, they would much rather, they would have rather Carrie Lake win, but they would rather Carrie Lake be the nominee and have lost than have run Doug Ducey and won. Right. Right. They want their martyr victim, Sarah Palin spinoff characters to populate television and talk radio for and raise money for them for a very long time. And so they would rather lose as MAGA martyrs than be party players and let, you know, McConnell pick candidates win. And the the trick there is then you just got to have you just got to have grownups take over the GOP again, which obviously is not going to happen in our lifetimes. Steve, how does this affect McCarthy's bid for speakership? You know, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that as, as Jonah was talking. I mean, you, you've seen some of the sort of entertainment right that Jonah mentions um, swing pretty decisively behind Kevin McCarthy in a way that is a little surprising. They're, they're uh, I, think in, I think, showing... Um, they're being more practical about their about their approach to politics. Maybe forced to do so by the the tight margins, but you have at the moment uh, a pitched battle um, with lots of sort of third grade level name calling between Mark Levin, uh, conservative what? anger, Wait, he's entertainment his guru. Name yeah, I mean, it's really all he does is is call mm-hmm. names, but. Uh, he's taking on Andy Biggs, who is the former chair of the House Freedom Caucus, who has who challenged uh, Kevin McCarthy for Republican leader, um, not getting many votes in the process, and has now announced a challenge to Kevin McCarthy for speaker and vowed that he will not vote for McCarthy under any circumstances. And Levin is really going after 
bigs for this, calling him an imbecile, you know, talking of sabotage, uh, what have you. And the idea that somebody like Mark Levin, who has for 20 plus years portrayed himself as kind of the ideological enforcer of uh, modern American conservatism, even if I don't think that's exactly, uh, he succeeded in that role. The idea that he would be going to the mat for someone like Kevin McCarthy, who is basically a non-ideological player, um, you know, would one time sort of leading establishment Republican is a very interesting development in this moment, I think suggests that that Republicans see that they don't have a, uh, you know, a lot of room to maneuver, or it suggests that they understand that Kevin McCarthy doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver. And by backing him now and backing him early and backing him publicly, they can basically get him to do what, what they want him to do. I mean, David, the same thing plays out with any substantive thing that House Republicans want to do as well. If you want to actually get legislation passed, you're going to need to get it through a Democratic Senate and, of course, a Democratic White House. Or you can do fan service and and run investigations, which, Mm -hmm. in fairness, is sort of part substance. Well, it depends how substantive you want those investigations to be, I suppose. Um, But in terms of legislative stuff, in the lame duck then... Before Republicans actually take control, there's been talk of an immigration compromise coming through. There's been talk about guns. We're still, nobody seems to be talking about the Electoral Count Act, which I'm very confused about. I really thought this was, we were told that this was done and the votes were there. And now it's mid-December. Where is everyone, David? Yeah. Yeah. Now the Electoral Count Act, that is a priority. That's an especially only to us, only to us, but no, no, like 35 <laughs> other people. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been on be, our podcast. <laughs> it should be more than just us and the listeners to this podcast who are all united. Um, look, make that a priority. It, if we can get in an immigration compromise as well, that's solid. Yeah. Make that a priority also. But as I've written two, I've written two things that are essentially the same thing pass electoral count, electoral count act reform or we're idiots. We're just idiots if we don't do but this. But David, I don't know why you'd phrase it like that because we are that's idiots. the question. Yes. <laughs> are we not idiots? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, to me, the really big question about the Republican-led House is less about investigation. They're going to investigate a lot of different things. Some things I want investigated, like the Afghanistan the precipitous Afghanistan withdrawal, what we knew when we knew it about when that government was going to collapse. I want to see the rocks upturned on that. Much less, much less interested in the Hunter Biden stuff. Very interested in Afghanistan. But here, you know, one of the questions I have is how much is this internal debate going to paralyze McCarthy when it comes to things like aid to Ukraine? And that is a subject where you could really easily see the GOP running off the rails with the constant drumbeat of sort of the infotainment wing in its ears leading it astray because we know the infotainment wing can lead it astray. We just watched that happen. We've been watching it happen for months and years. So is it going to happen on something truly world historically consequential such as aid for Ukraine when Vladimir Putin was just saying, essentially trying to get his people ready for a long war and laying the seeds for potentially another wave of mobilization. So this, you know, our steadfastness in support of Ukraine is the, if I had to think of how many world historic, uh, how many world historic moves can this next Congress make? It's a very short list, but high on that list would be, it would be world historic to cut off aid to Ukraine. And how much is McCarthy going to be held hostage by his hyper-populist America first wing. That's what I'm really curious about. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, 
real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Before we go to foreign policy, maybe it is worth a minute to talk about Jonah, Hunter Biden, House investigation. Is it into Hunter Biden? Is it into Joe Biden? Is it into Twitter? Do we care? Uh, so, uh, look, I, I think there are legitimate, absolutely legitimate questions to ask. Going back to sort of journalism 101 about the president's finances. Uh, part of the problem is, is that Donald Trump's finances were so corrupt. It's like a giant honking industrial magnet next to our compass. And you have like, like most mainstream media analysts and, and pundits and stuff. They cannot resist the gravitational pull of doing whataboutism as if the whatever Trump did makes it okay for Biden's finances to be whatever they are and there's nothing to see here. And it does seem like there are some shady things with the Biden, I'm not going to call it the Biden crime family, which a lot <laughs> of my friends like to do, but the Biden family is, you know, uh, it's got some sketchy stuff. Maybe it's just like a Billy Carter kind of situation, you know, or a Roger Clinton situation. I don't know, but it seems to me utterly legitimate for a party that control for the, for Congress to do oversight and look into that kind of stuff, ask questions about it and whatnot. Um, similarly, I think there is merit to criticisms about the whole Hunter Palooza stuff um, and the way Twitter handled it and all the rest. The problem is that the people who are most invested in this story in either a positive or negative way are so exhausting that it's very difficult for me to find enough oxygen in the coverage and the conversation to figure out where I come down. Because there are people who are absolutely convinced that Hunter Biden and the laptop are responsible for the defenestration of Prague the chemicals in Kentucky Fried Chicken that make you crave it fortnightly, um, the Kennedy assassination, which we know didn't actually happen, and everything under the sun. And then there are people who say, you're a crackpot if you have any questions or concerns about any of this stuff. And I have no confidence, particularly given Kevin McCarthy's narrow margins, if he becomes speaker at all, and potentially the Liz Truss of American politics, um, to be able, like he's promised Marjorie Taylor Greene prominent committee assignments. Like the idea that he's going to be able to keep those things from becoming clown shows, those hearings, is just incredibly uh, unlikely. And um, similarly, the people who are going to say, oh, how cruel the Republicans are for picking on the president's drug addict son, um, are going to uh, gaslight everybody to say that there's there's no legitimate questions to have about any of this stuff. And I guess it's one of the reasons why the dispatch exists is to kind of figure out what the, the, the you know, the golden mean between these two poles are. But like, it's not, it's not something I'm, I, I, everybody just turns me off. It's the same thing with the Twitter file stuff. The people who think it's the biggest story in the universe and the people who think it's an absolute nothing burger there's got to be some space in between those two end zones um, to sort of say, well, this is troubling, but this is overblown and all the rest. And it's difficult. David, you and I have talked about this offline a little bit in that, uh, you know, when this story comes out in October of 2020, the, and actually maybe this is better for Steve because you'll know more of our reporting side. Um, it comes out from Rudy Giuliani sort of, partisan actors, obviously, within the Trump campaign. And there were just a lot of questions around like what this was, where they got it, sort of the provenance of the whole thing, because it looked so much like the DNC hack of 2016, which then we later found out, of course, um, 
the Department of Justice indicted 12 Russian GRU intelligence officers for that hack. Um, and you, you've said this before, but we tried to get information about that. We did. Yeah, no, we reached out to, to Rudy Giuliani's lawyers. We tried to get a copy of the the hard drive in real time as this was happening so that we could uh, do our best to, to vet it and take a look at it uh, ourselves. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with the original story is there were the, 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 the Providence story was was crazy and I think remains crazy. Like there are unresolved issues with the Providence story that don't make sense. Um, there were clear contradictions in the different versions of the story that we heard from major players to, to, to such a degree that it doesn't matter if this is about Hunter Biden's laptop or if this is about, you know, the origins of ag subsidies. When you have these kinds of contra contradictions, you have to ask more questions. It would have been irresponsible not to ask more questions and to act with the skepticism that those contradictions, I think, required. Um, having said that, you know, as, as we learned more, there, there certainly were questions. I mean, there were questions that Jonah wrote about this, you know, a week before the 2020 election, where he said, he wrote an entire column saying, let's, let's treat this as if it's real. You know, there, there are signs that it could be Russian disinformation. It, it's quite possible that some of it's real. Let's treat it as, a, as if it's real. And here's the, the conversation we should have. I think if you if you look back at the context, we, we know what Russia did in 2016. It certainly was the case that the big tech platforms, um, most of the mainstream media, um, certainly current and retired intelligence officials, were looking at the Hunter Biden laptop story while they were anticipating meddling from Russia. So... Mm -hmm. If you're anticipating this and you're thinking it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And, you know, we, we published stories about how it was coming. Certainly the New York Times, the, the tech platforms published stories. There were working groups about how to, to handle Russian meddling in the 2020 election. If you're prepared for this and you, you think it's coming, you know it's coming, you have intelligence assessment that tell you it's coming based on what we saw in 2016. And then you see something that looks like what you're anticipating. I think it led people en masse to conclude, ah, there it is. Mm -hmm. We've been looking and looking and looking, and here it is finally. That's, that's to a certain extent, understandable. I, I, as I say, I think there were reasons to doubt um, at least parts of the story of the providence. But it also is the kind of thing that should require everybody, most especially, I would say, intelligence professionals, to, to check those assumptions, to test those assumptions. We can't, we can't operate on, on assumptions. And, you know, if I look back on the way that we covered it, I, I think we showed real restraint. We pursued the story, not in a way that, that resulted in a lot of, you know, public facing reporting on it. But of course, that's the case with any kind of reporting. A ton of reporting happens that we never publish. We pursued the story. We tried to, to get as much information as we, we could. I would say I wish that we had done more to follow up on it after the, the original sort of blow up about it. after the election. Take another look. Try to get it verified. Try again to get copies of, of the hard drive. I went, yeah, I went back and reread a lot of our early stuff on this just because, you know, I knew that a lot of folks were going to be doing that. I wanted to see if my recollection matched our work because I wrote about it right after it came out and I was and basically took the position of I don't know if this is real but it might be if it is what does this say uh, took a position critical of Twitter's decision to clamp down on the distribution of the story um, and I looked at our morning dispatch coverage it was very sober-minded this is what it says this is where it allegedly came from. Here's why there's reasons to be skeptical, but it dealt with what it said. And all of our coverage dealt with what it said. And, and what I've kind of taken away from this is one of the reasons why the major part of the conversation now is about Twitter and not the contents of the laptop is that the contents of the laptop remain were and remain 99% a Hunter Biden story and not in 1% a Joe Biden story based on what we've seen of it so far. And this thing's been out in the public domain for a while, but there's a huge amount of resentment surrounding the fact that not just Twitter, 
but a bin, a, essentially all of media took this uh, outside of sort of, I would say r- outside of right-wing infotainment, but that's not even entirely true. Huge sections of media, including conservative media, were highly skeptical of this because the story was so wild. Remember, there was reporting that Fox passed on the story. There was reporting that the Wall Street Journal had said, eh, we're not so sure about this. There was reporting that the lead author of the New York Post story had their name withheld from the story because they were so worried about it. And why would they be worried? It's not that the Wall Street Journal or Fox or this New York Post reporter necessarily had an ax to grind for Biden is because the story was wild and it was crazy. A hard drive comes in from Rudy Giuliani, says it came from a blind computer repair person where Hunter had just left the laptop and ghosted. It was a wild story. And when you have a wild story like that, you in your responsible journalistic organization, the thing you do not do is go Leroy Jenkins and just throw it all out (laughs) into the public, which is what they did. And they got very lucky that this was turned out to be, seems to be a legit hard drive. That was a very lucky thing. But if you're doing best reporting practices and Rudy Giuliani walks into your office with a hard drive and says, this is an exact match of Hunter Biden's, that I got from a blind computer repair person, then you're going to work on that a long time to verify before you publish when you're being responsible. And I think one of the issues that people glide over is that the New York Post, the way it responded to this, this information was to Leroy Jenkins it, and then it got lucky. It got very, very lucky. And that's what's grinding so many people is not just Twitter, but the widespread skepticism at this thing. So it seems to me that the questions that we're left with on this story are, or the possibilities maybe is a better way to phrase it, um, that Hunter Biden is a sketchy figure who traded on his father's name to make money through international business dealings. Another possibility is that all of those things are true and that Joe Biden was involved as well. There's that email referring to the kickback to the big guy. A lot of people are making the assumption or believe that that could be referring to Joe Biden. Um, The problem for me with that is that it very well could be referring to Joe Biden, but there's no real evidence that Joe Biden knew about that, agreed to it. The money never happened. Um, Everyone agrees to that part. And so you can still think that Hunter Biden is this sketchy guy doing, you know, trading on his dad's name for these international business deals and that Joe Biden wanted nothing to do with it. Um, And, you know, we see it in the micro sense with the emails about the key to the office in Georgetown where he says, Joe Biden's going to need a key. Well, they never office there. There was never a plan to office there. He never got the key. And so when Hunter Biden spoke on behalf of what his dad was going to do or what his dad wanted, there's at least some evidence that his dad wasn't involved in that at all. It's kind of sad. Um, okay, so there's that whole mess. I should Joe just add Biden's- to that. I don't want to interrupt, but I, I add to that. Most of the stuff that you just described, the outlines of which were known before the election, right? Correct. So like the whole yeah, yeah. The election was stolen because this stuff was buried. There were lots of stories about sketchy yeah. Hunter and his finances before the election. Okay, so when I think about those possibilities, A, I don't feel like I've learned much in the last year since the election about that. But also, you know, with the release of these Twitter files, um, if anything, it showed a lack of coordination with the government. You know, there was all that sort of initial, oh my God, the First Amendment conversation. But of course, when they were referring to the Biden team, they were referring to the campaign. So you had a private uh, company, the social media entity, talking to a private organization, a presidential campaign. Um, Now, of course, there was a 50-50 chance of who was going to win that presidential election. You can certainly argue that therefore they had outsized influence on what Twitter wanted to do and things like that. But so far, what I've seen in those Twitter files actually sort of alleviates a lot of that, oh, they did it because the FBI told them it was Russian disinformation. They believed it was Russian disinformation. No, it looks like, um, again, at least of 
what we've seen so far that there wasn't actually a whole lot of there there yet. Open to seeing more, as I said, there's actually still quite a few possibilities and unresolved answers in some of this. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I do want to make sure we leave enough time for the foreign policy parts. Steve, um, it's been kind of a strange week in the world. We had protests, obviously, that had been going on in China and Iran, and then movement in those countries that seemed to move toward the protesters a little bit. Then we have coup attempts in Peru and Germany, not the two countries that I thought um, were, were on our list for this week, for instance. And then, of course, ongoing things in Russia. Can you take us around the world a little bit, I guess? (laughs) <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll pick and choose a little bit. I I, I, th- I think that, you know, the, there's a lot to learn still about what um, unfolded in, in Germany and the coup attempt that was was broken up there as ties to German far right parties, maybe some, a, a QAnon angle. Um, and and Peru, uh, we're learning more, I think, very quickly, even even faster than in Germany. The, the interesting, most interesting developments to me in some respects are, are what we're seeing in, in China and Iran for totally different reasons. I mean, there are, there are parallels, I think, but obviously a lot of different um, underlying details that, that make them uh, worth, worth discussing. In, in Iran, we saw the regime as the protests there continue um, and in, in some ways grow. We saw the regime at least rhetorically suggest that uh, it might be easing off of some of its requirements with respect to to dress and some of its other hardline policies. Now, immediately, people who have followed the Iranian regime carefully for the past several decades said, this is all BS. This is, this is meant for uh, Western consumption. There's no sign that they're doing this. And in fact, we've seen uh, reports as of Thursday that they have proceeded with new executions of prisoners who are guilty of nothing more than uh, participating in protests. So there's evidence that the regime, that this is sort of a rhetorical feint. I still find that interesting. Why would the Iranian regime think it advantageous or necessary, perhaps, to engage in such a rhetorical thing? Obviously, these protests, the fact that they've been going on for many months, the fact that they seem to be, um, in some respects, growing, the tone of the protests and the kinds of things that we're hearing from protesters, whether actually in the protests, whether on their signs, whether, uh, you know, rap songs smuggled out from Iran, really challenging the regime and its supporters in the West, uh, feels significant. And, and it doesn't show any real signs of dissipating. I think this has to be the Iranian regime reacting at least in part to that. In China, I would say we've seen something similar. Um, this, the zero COVID policy has been a failure when, to the extent that, that um, citizens in China can see what's happening elsewhere in the world, can see that people in the United States, Europe and elsewhere are living semi-normal lives, 
they look at the regime's no COVID policy and say, this has failed. This is not working for us. Um, that's, of course, why, as we discussed last week, the regime has gone to great lengths to not allow those images to, to be seen in China. Um, but the protests, which you know, for, for years had been isolated individual places, have also spread. There are obvious, clear and clever workarounds for the protesters to use to, to gin up more. Those protesters have been much more aggressive in recent years than they, than they uh, or recent weeks than they have been in years. And I think the regime, while perhaps not in danger of any imminent collapse, of course, is paying attention to that. They see this and they're worried about their standing with, uh, with China's citizens. I think that's a pretty notable development. And I wish that the United States in both of these cases would do more to support the protesters. These are regimes that I think can properly be called enemy regimes of the United States. We should want them to be weak. We should want them to fail. Uh, of course, there are repercussions to that. Of course, there are market interests in, in China. But given what China has done to the United States and what is it's doing regularly, same thing with Iran, we should not want strong regimes in these places. We should be doing what we can to weaken them. David, also, we have reports that we have made a one-to-one -one prisoner swap to get Brittany Griner back to the United States in exchange for a Russian arms dealer. Was this smart? So first, I'm happy for Brittany Griner, happy for her family. Um, you know, one of these these situations, I think it's possible to try to hold two th thoughts in your head at the same time. One, I can be happy that she's back. Two, I can think it's a bad deal. Um, I And I think this is a bad deal. You know, w the idea that you can grab and hold our citizens on specious grounds and extort and extract from us um, a truly reprehensible prisoner in exchange for returning uh, our citizens is sets a really difficult precedent. There was another American, though, that we have left behind so far named Paul Whelan, a former Marine. Um, and so I, I, I'm happy for her. I think this is a very bad deal. At the same time, I also realize this is different from dealing with a terrorist organization where you have sort of on the possibility of rescue is sort of uh, fluttering around as, well, wait a minute, well, there's alternatives to prisoner swaps. And one of the alternatives is perhaps finding and rescuing the prisoner has happened in other situations throughout history. This one, the idea that you're going to swoop into Russia and rescue Brittany Griner or Paul Whelan is just nonsense. So the decision tree is more limited here, but I think it's a, I think it's a bad deal. Uh, I'm I'm upset that we didn't also get Waylon out, although I'm not certain that the door is closed on this, that there's perhaps other there are other negotiations going on. But coughing up a reprehensible prisoner who was convicted of conspiring to kill Americans, conspiring to kill Americans in exchange, uh, I, ha I have real qualms about it. So General has brought this out to the foreign policy positions of the Biden administration. You have Steve and David describing inaction and action by the Biden team. Are they prioritizing the right things? Are they not, are, are they ineffective? So um, in terms of the things that we've already been discussing, um, I'm really curious about the decision-making that went into these negotiations. Look, I, I agree with everybody. It's great that this woman is home. She deserves to come home. She didn't deserve to be arrested. It was outrageous what Russia did. And obviously, it's not the same thing as the Bo Bergdahl situation in the Obama administration. But one of the interesting things about the Bergdahl recovery was how deeply it reflected how deep in the bubble the Obama administration was about what the public's reaction to it was going to be, right? They thought like giving five serious members of the Taliban in exchange for a guy who basically deserted his unit was going to be hugely popular. There was actually a uh, Obama aide who told Rolling Stone at the time that, that um, uh, this is going to win the election for us, um, which you shouldn't say. Um, and um, I mean, I know you know more about comms than I do, but like that was not a good thing to say. And, um, and so uh, this is obviously not the exact same situation, but 
it is entirely possible to me that the world that the Obama, not the Obama, the Biden White House lives in, thinks Griner's arrest was a much bigger deal than the median American does. Um, and that they may overhype it in ways that may not be politically to their benefit. Um, on the merits, I, th- I just think it's a bad deal. Um, more broadly, I-, I think you have to give Biden pretty seriously good grades on how he's handled Ukraine. Um, and without it seeming, um, without giving much ammo to the, um, much fair ammo to the boob bait, isolationist crowd on the right. Um, you know, there's a point that, you know, like Luke Coffey over at, at Hudson will make all the time. If you actually look at polling, the average Republican is actually very pro Ukraine in mm-hmm. all of this. And the, 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 the sort of MAGA caucus crowd in, in Congress and the president of the heritage foundation, notwithstanding, um, beating up on the Ukraine stuff, um, isn't a mainstream Republican or conservative position, never mind a mainstream American one. I have to say on, on Saudi Arabia, on Iran, um, Biden gets much lower marks. Uh, this country should have a bedrock nonpartisan policy of we root for people fighting for freedom. Um, and rhetorically, we're not, we have not been there. Um, when I say that to Defenders of the Biden administration said, well, you don't know what's going on behind the scene. And Reagan said things in public while he was fighting for the good guy, good fight behind the scenes. True. I'm open to correction on all that. Um, but when you see Saudi Arabia having this high level visit with the Chinese this week, um, uh, when you see how basically Saudi Arabia just doesn't like Joe Biden, or at least the crown prince doesn't like Joe Biden, um, he's kind of mucked up that relationship. He's uh, the the politics of wanting oil from Venezuela, but but not from Texas and Montana, strikes me as very strange. Um, and I just want to correct one thing that Steve said. Absolutely, the the topics that he he said that the, the things that are most interesting are China and in Iran. Um, I absolutely agree with what he what I think he meant, which is they're the most important things. But the most interesting thing is the story that broke this week that uh, that. Warriors, uh, Teutonic Knights for the Second Reich um, attempted a coup in Germany this week um, with elements from the QAnon brigades um, and, uh, um, and on the theory that they were going to reinstall, reinstall the, uh, essentially the Kaiser or a distant relative of the Kaiser. Um, that is like, almost Marvel superhero movie plotting right there. And I think it's fantastic. I mean, probably bad for Germany and all that, but, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, um, and I think I, I, I must know more about it. Steve, I'm curious how you would compare the Biden administration's actions. You can pick whichever ones you want from this potpourri bag this week. Compared to what you think a Trump administration would have done in the same position and what a other Republican president, conservative president would do in this week, where does it differ? Where is it the same? It's a good question. I mean, I think one of the problems with the Biden administration policy is that nobody knows what it's going to do from situation to situation. There's no through line. Um, You can't predict this. Now, this is something that was said, I think, in fact, said by me as a criticism of the Trump administration policy. It's good to let people know. It's good to, to tell people what your principles are so that they can make their positions and make their, their important decisions with an understanding of what the U.S. reaction will be, particularly if you are the world's leading superpower. Um, I think the, the Biden administration seems to be doing this on an ad hoc basis that in some ways isn't unlike, at least by judging by results, what the Trump administration would do, right? I mean, you, you had the Biden administration, even after these protests had, had been going on in Iran, even after Barack Obama said publicly that he regretted not being more forceful about the Green Revolution, sort of leaving open the, the possibility that they would pers- continue to pursue the Iran nuclear deal. That's crazy. I mean, I think it was crazy not to, to 
set aside the Iran nuclear deal based on the, the actions of the regime going back decades before it. I think it was a, a, a poor decision to do it. But in the face of everything that's happening on the ground, is, as you're seeing this demonstrated weakness by the Iranian regime, the Biden administration said publicly, yeah, we, we're not we're not sort of done with that yet. They've later issued statements that seem to suggest it's not going to happen, but they're much more descriptive statements. This is probably something that's not going to happen than, you know, statements of, of moral judgment where they're saying we couldn't possibly do a deal with a regime like this. It's killing its own people. And the same thing is true on, on this the story coming out of, out of Russia on this Brittany Griner exchange. Everything David said, agree with it. Of course, we're happy for the families, um, should be stipulated. But why Brittany Griner and, and not Paul Whelan? There are other people in captivity, including uh, someone named Mark Fogel, who was a teacher at a, uh, an Anglo-American school in Moscow, uh, who was taken for having small amounts of marijuana, detained for having small amounts of marijuana, prescribed marijuana, as he traveled into Moscow. And the State Department hasn't even concluded that he's been wrongfully detained at this point, um, much less made much of an effort, at least much of an effort that we know of, to, to get him released. It just seems arbitrary. And I think the, the real concern with this prisoner ex- exchange is that it, it makes Americans targets around the world. Uh, other people are paying attention to this. Other rogue regimes are watching what's happened, and they're seeing that if they take an American, they can extract concessions uh, from us for 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 doing this. There's a really interesting Twitter thread, and you all know how much I hate to bring up Twitter threads on this <laughs> podcast, so you know I think it's really, really interesting. Um, but it's from a, a guy named Alex Plitzas, who used to work, he's now at the Atlantic Council, used to work at the Pentagon on hostage situations. And uh, he, he says he was the Secretary of Defense's representative to the 2015 White House Hostage Policy Review Team. But so he helped come up with the policy and looked at oversight and on, on hostage rescue and, and personnel recovery uh, and has been working on this for, for a long time. He said that traditionally these are these kinds of swaps are reserved for members of the military, maybe intelligence officials who've been captured in the course of their duties. What this does, and I'm quoting here, is send a signal to rogue regimes, terrorist organizations that the U.S. is willing to negotiate and provide concessions for releasing hostages. This is incredibly dangerous as it only encourages further hostage taking. That I think he's I think he's got a good point, and I, I worry about the 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 short-term and, and long-term consequences of doing So, Steve, one, one factual thing, um, or at least purported factual thing, uh, Andrea Mitchell was reporting, apparently was on this, was going to break a lot of this. She was saying on the, on the Whalen question that at least what the administration is saying is that the Russians never, they, their position was, he's an espionage case. We are not talking about that. You, it's one for one or nothing. And they took right. Whalen off the table. Now, maybe that's that's not necessarily a defense of just accepting it, right? But. No, I think it makes it worse in 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 many ways because of exactly what what Alex Plitzis has said. And it was the case that in the earlier discussions of this, at least publicly, the administration administration officials were backgrounding reporters suggesting that it would be Whalen and Griner uh, for this Victor boot. Um, it feels like it certainly feels like a, a step back. It should also be noted that the Whalen family has put out a statement commending the Biden administration for getting Brittany Griner, even in this moment of disappointment. And with that, instead of a not worth your time, I actually want to read the statement from the Whalen family. There is no greater success than for a wrongful detainee to be freed and for them to go home. The Biden administration made the right decision to bring Ms. Greiner home and to make the deal that was possible rather than waiting for the one that wasn't going to. There's a lot of Americans who are being held abroad this Christmas that aren't going to be with their families for another year. Um, And I think it's just worth a moment on this podcast to think of them. Austin Tice has been in last seen in Syria in 2012. And his family has been waiting for him and praying for him um, and trying to secure his release. The Whalen family has been missing their son for four years now. 
And there are so many other Americans in all sorts of places, um, Rwanda, Venezuela, Iran, the list goes on. So this Christmas, when you're sitting around the table, cheers to them and think of their families as well this year. Thanks for joining us and make sure to rate this podcast if you want other people to be able to find it as well. And if you want to comment on this episode, become a member of the dispatch and hop in the comment section. We'll see you there. Ready for this? Do, 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 do.